When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Burn by Books, the books podcast with almost no math. I'm your host, Chris Holmes, professor of world literature at Ithaca College and professional noticer of interesting things. This week, I'm going to introduce you to a writer that you should already know. When I picked up his most recent novel, The Stone Loves the World, I had not heard of Brian Hall. But as I would soon find out, the appraisal of his seven books mark him as one of our great American writers. Nearly every book he has written has ended up on a best of the year in several of the major newspapers, and reviews from his varied sources as Tony Kushner and Barbara Kingsolver attest to not only his literary talent, but as well his capacious genius. He has written a biography of a three-year-old called one of the best nonfiction books of the last quarter century, a fictionalization of Robert Frost's life, an imaginative animation of the relationship between Lewis and Clark, and a novel, The Saskiad, which has a cult following and which functions as a prequel to The Stone Loves the World. Brian's capacity to write about any subject with a fierce intellect and empathetic eye is startling and puts him amongst a rarefied few. This newest novel is both a classic work of domestic fiction following the lives of three generations of a family, and it is an exploration of the deep time of human existence. The world of science and mathematics is fully integrated into the voices of these characters who are drawn across the 20th and 21st centuries. It is a wonderful work of fiction and a lasting novel. Let's get to my interview with Brian Hall. Welcome back to Burn by Books. It is my great pleasure to welcome Brian Hall to the show. He's the author of seven books, five of them novels, including a biographical novel of the tragic life of Robert Frost that the Boston Globe called Flawless, Intensely Moving, and Supremely Intelligent. As well, I Should Be Happy in Your Company, a historical novel of the Lewis and Clark expeditions that was an LA Times best novel of the year. Madeline's World, a biography of a three-year-old that Slate ranked as one of the best nonfiction books of the last 25 years. The Impossible Country, a chronicle of the last days of Yugoslavia, when Brian was one of the last foreigners to travel through at the brink of civil war. And the Saskiad, the beloved novel of the precocious young girl, Saskia White, who is one of the protagonists of Brian's newest novel, The Stone Loves the World. 
One of the hallmarks of Brian's fiction and nonfiction is his capacious intellect and seemingly unquenchable curiosity about the world. The Stone Loves the World, which is both a sequel to the Saskiaad and an entirely new creation, is the zenith of that curious mind. It is the story of three generations of a family and the decisions, small and monumental, that affect not only their own lives and progeny, but which press a subtle mark into the history of humankind writ large. We return to the story of Saskia White, now an actress of little renown, who is living with her daughter, Meta, a mathematical genius who is the product of a brief relationship with an astrophysicist named Mark. When Meta leaves suddenly for a bus trip across the country and a journey to Denmark, like a planet shifted in her orbit, Saskia is propelled back into the lives of her family and, and those of her former lover. The novel moves back and forth in time between 1926 and 2017, capturing snapshots of the lives of Meta's grandparents and parents. Along the way, we are immersed in the lives of Vernon and Imogene, Mark's parents, both born into relative poverty and, and social immobility, who break the gravity of their circumstances to become graduate students in physics. Vernon will go on to have a complicated career at the Rand Corporation, while Imogen will find her career stymied by the expectations for a mid-20th century woman. Along the way, questions about the choices and direction of the family's life become interwoven with questions about the direction of the human race, the geological time of the planet, life on other planets, along with deep dives into science, math, music, and culture. The Stone Loves the World draws its enormous effective power from its scalar thinking about human life in the micro-existence of one family line and the macro-thinking of Earth time. While it has been favorably compared to Jonathan Franzen's The Corrections, The Stone Loves the World is both a classical example of the domestic dramas of the novel and an utterly new creation that draws on many different methodologies for thinking about existence and weaves them seamlessly into narrative. The experience of reading this empathetic and caring novel is one of discovery. I'm grateful for having read it. Welcome to Burn by Books, Brian Hall. Hi. Hi. I'm, I'm very glad to be here. I would love if you would start by reading a section of the novel from um, part three, when Meta, Saskia's daughter, is halfway across the country by bus, having left behind her mother um, to more fully consider her life. And she reads a history of mathematics as the cities of the U.S. pass her by. Friday, February 19th, 2016. She stayed awake through last night and the following morning, then slept all afternoon between Billings and Missoula when the bus was crowded, woke up at 7.30 p.m. for the transfer. The bus leaving Missoula had 14 passengers, of which six remained after the stop in Spokane at 1.30 a.m. It is Spokane. Who knew? Now it's 3 a.m., and the other five are asleep, all quiet except for the hum of the tires and that vertical undulation like breathing that buses often do on highways, something modular in the construction of the roadbed. Her cone of light reminds her of her gooseneck lamp back home. She can almost believe the rest of the world doesn't exist. 
So this is how to ride a long-distance bus, working the night shift. Maybe she could do it forever. In Seattle, buy a ticket for New York, repeat, oscillate between the coasts like a cesium-133 atom in an atomic clock. From time dilation, she'd age slower than the rest of the population, gain maybe a millionth of a second over the course of her lifetime. Who needs love? In Missoula, she used the free Wi-Fi in the station to research tire hum. It turns out engineers use computers to randomize the size and placement of tread blocks on tires so that they, the tires, not the engineers, will generate, when rotating, a sound as close as possible to white noise. But as with light curves from stars, there will always exist a predominating frequency, however slight. It intrigues her that of the six buses she's been on since New York, the hum at highway cruising speed has always been somewhere between G and B-flat. As the tire model is probably standard throughout the Greyhound fleet, the differences in frequency could be the result of different amounts of wear on the treads, or different roadbeds, or different speeds at which the different drivers cruise. It's true that the pitch drops when the bus slows. Still, no one has sat next to her. However, the buses since Chicago have been considerably less than full, so probably it doesn't mean anything. How asymmetrical of her that she cares, since she loves pretending she's the only person in the world. Asymmetry, thy name is human. That's great. Thank you so much. It's so nice to hear that section. I chose it in particular because I think it's a nice demonstration of how fluidly you move between intellectual registers. One moment, Meta is considering the engineering of tire treads. The next, she considers the fallibility of youthful idealism and why she might be secluded on the bus ride. The entire novel moves smoothly in and out of those registers, small and large, and across fields of knowledge without a hiccup. How did you come to the structure of the no to structure the novel around these ways of thinking? I uh, I knew that for this novel, I wanted to write uh, with a lot of the characters being scientists um, or have a scientific or mathematical bent. I come from a family where that's a strong trait. And I've often felt when I read uh, novels by people where science comes in, I often feel that um, there isn't a good uh, evocation of how the scientific way of looking at everything around you really does, in my experience and, and of friends of mine who are scientists, the way they look at the world in every moment is is through this lens of oh how does that work and oh gee i wonder hmm if that's true then is it true that here let me get a piece of paper and i'll note this down and mm -hmm. see if i can figure out what's going on this kind of thing is it is the whole nature of having that kind of way of looking at the world and i often think when i read other novels about scientists that they don't they don't to me, often feel like they think the way I think scientists do. Um, and, and I think there's a concern that the authors have that they, if they get into it too much, it'll be too daunting to the readers. Yeah. And whether or not that's true, I think that psychologically, I don't find them convincing um, or, or very interesting. 
Mm. Yeah, and and as someone who's not particularly, I'm sad to say, scientifically minded, um, I loved being in the the brains of these scientists, and I was deeply jealous of their um, of their infinite curiosity about how things work and why things are the way they are. Um, your moment in uh, describing meta thinking about the white noise of the bus tire, something I had never thought of, reminded me of living with a homestay family in Japan and having my homestay brother describe how when you sit in a Toyota car, the fabric of the seat is designed to sort of turn that off color as you sit down and then when you stand back up that the fibers will move back into the sort of perfect monological color um, that they're supposed to be and i thought who on earth thought of that um and a lot of this novel is a is that question who thought of that and it's indeed these um these characters you both plan to have the novel famous backwards alike. and forwards between eras and generations i know that's you know certainly historical novels do that um, novels of all kinds do that but did you hesitate and think about how the chronology would work or did you always imagine it as this sort of rhythmic um moving back and forth to a certain extent, uh, I, I always knew I wasn't going to follow a strict chronology, and that's um, I've done that a lot. I did it a lot in the Frost novel, and found it a rewarding way to think about um, if if I'm writing a, a book where I'm trying as much as possible to indicate what it feels like in the interior of people's minds. Uh, I think that our minds, uh, the way we live our felt lives, uh, don't don't work chronologically. Mm -hmm. We instead are always sunk in all of the parts of our lives that come up to us at different times that resonate with us um, later on when something happens. And since my books tend to be quite interior that way, um, I've, I've, I'm always attracted to the idea of following something thematically rather than chrono chronologically. So, for example, that there's a early on a brief phone call between Mark and Saskia, the parents of Meta, and they haven't lived together or they never lived together um, and they haven't really been much in touch for a long time. And after that phone call, which takes place in the in the present of the novel, the time when Meta is on the bus, then there's a chapter from Mark's point of view, remembering when he first met Saskia. And a little bit later, there's a chapter from Saskia's point of view, remembering when she first met Mark. And that, to me, just makes loads of sense to do it that way, mm -hmm. um, to bring these things. The, uh, the implication being that, to a certain extent, the two characters are thinking of the, this after this contentious phone call. Um, I don't make that explicit, and it doesn't have to be an explicit uh, explanation, but it's just to kind of touch on the way our the way our minds work. The one difference was I originally had the Vernon and Imogen section the parents of mark that is now forms the middle section of the novel i first had that at the very beginning hmm. not, not not really because i thought of it as a good idea i had had things i had, had the idea that i wanted chapters about them and then as i wrote about them those that bit got longer 
And so as it got longer, I thought, oh, maybe I should put them all together rather than have them because that might be too confusing to have it all, you know, mixed. So I kind of stuck them at the front. And then an early reader friend of mine uh, said, oh, this should be in the middle. Hmm. Uh, and he was absolutely right. Was that um, um, was that John Lennon who suggested yes, that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You, I think you said that in the in the acknowledgments. And I wondered yeah. which section you had moved. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, uh, of course, uh, the, the correct uh, the correct way to do it so that I could start and end with the same set of characters. Hmm. I, I, I'm not trying to be over complimentary when I say that my experience of reading this novel is like the encounter with genius. Um, and what I mean is that the characters seem capable, as, as you've said, in their sort of scientific and logical grappling um, to deal with the great conundrums of the world via almost any methodology that governs human thought. Along the way, characters engage astrophysics, engineering, the rules for languages other than English, the history of mathematics, music and music theory, nuclear science and the creation of the atomic bomb, political theory, game theory, literary criticism, visual art aesthetics, and all without it feeling burdensome. How do you approach writing about technical and intellectual issues from such a diversity of scientific and humanistic fields of thought? Yeah, I... I for one, uh, I, I try to I try to keep it from being overwhelming. Um, for one thing, I I try to write in such a way, and of course I can't be sure myself how successful I am at it. But I try to write in such a way that if I'm referring to something that the reader doesn't know much about or doesn't really care much about, they can they can they can get what I'm doing. But what the basic point is. So, for example, the math. I don't expect readers, uh, I don't expect, uh, I, I, I presume a lot of readers, um, you know, don't, don't really know the math. And that, to me, I, I think it should be perfectly possible to enjoy both Meta's chapters and the email exchanges between her and her father without worrying about whether they can follow the math or not. Mm. It's really a way of showing this is the way her mind works. And this is the way she communicates with her father, you know, uh, in a way that they both um, they both are comfortable with. They're both uncomfortable with the language of emotion and caring. And so the way they show uh, interest in each other, which for them does mean caring, is by talking about subjects. Mm -hmm. And uh, I grew up in a family where where this was one of the traits of my family. Um, and so, so I, I try to keep things moving fast enough that, that readers won't get discouraged too much. And then also the, the, for example, the science that I have with, um, about, um, about astronomy with Mark, I try to keep it at a level where people can follow relatively straightforwardly. So when he's talking about the, the chance of, intelligent life on other planets mm -hmm. after he's given that lecture and he's now thinking about how to improve the lecture. I try to get that moving along in a, in a, in a fast enough, um, and, and a relatively simple enough level that people can basically get the point of what he's, of what he's thinking about. 
Yeah, and I've, I found that to be the case. In fact, it, it sort of reminded me a little bit of the way um, Richard Feynman was able to have kind of anecdotal things explain really, really difficult um, subject matter. And right. um, I found myself utterly engrossed. Uh, and these were, for the most part, things that I hadn't spent much time thinking about, except in very, very abstract, non-scientific terms, um, but that they gave me entree to think about them. And I felt kind of grateful that I, I got to think alongside these people who were able to do it in terms that were unavailable to me. Um, and that was one of the the real joys of the novel. There is, in and, and critics have talked about this in a in a in a unanimously positive way, but they talk about the tension in the novel between the science and more humanistic ways of answering these great historical questions about humankind's purpose in the world. Is that a tension, especially with, as you say, a kind of quite scientific family um, that you experience in your own life? Yes, um, uh, in a couple of different ways. One of them being just the simply that I grew up excelling in the sciences through high school. And since my father was a physicist and my mother had been a chemist, they both just assumed that I'd, I'd become a scientist, and I did too. Mm. They didn't put pressure mm -hmm. on me. They just assumed it. Um, and I got to college, and as soon as I had a choice, when I looked at the large course catalog and for the first time could really – just actually question myself. Well, what are the courses I actually want to take, not the ones I have to take? And then uh, I realized that I, all the courses I were, I was actually interested in were history and literature. Hmm. So I just did this 180 degree turn right at the beginning of college, um, majored in English, uh, and didn't yet know that I wanted to be a writer, but I just found. English, um, exciting literature, exciting in a way that I had never found science that science, you know, studied in, you know, to, to really be a scientist, uh, you have to have the ability to the desire to drill in and focus over many years on a very particular thing. And I have a much more, you can probably tell from the book. I have a, I have a, I have an interest that ranges much too broadly to to fit well with that kind of dedication <laughs> whereas being a writer it's perfect right you can yeah. research something for a while through a book and then research something else and do that book so that's part of it um my uh my first marriage was to a, a, a woman who came from a family that was much more sort of artistic um intuitive whatever words you want to apply to it uh, much more literary um, immersed in literary culture, music culture. And I was with her for 28 years and we had in many ways a great marriage. Um, but during that period, we spent a fair amount of time, you know, exploring this interesting gap between or the uh, divergence or tension between the way I tended to look at the world and the way she tended to look at the world. And the Saskia, the first novel about Saskia, is somewhat inspired by by my first wife and so bringing saskia back um i knew that i wanted to explore a bit further this this issue um 
And of course, deep down, I believe that these are perfectly reconcilable or communicable um, uh, differences that can be can be mutually discussed. And 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 this allowed me to set it against the larger background of U.S. and world politics and and ethnic group tension is mm-hmm. is to what extent can we communicate across differences of temperament and differences of outlook? So the science and the humanities is the most the most focused, and then in the background is these larger issues of human in group out group. Um, conflict. Yeah, and you and basically every person I've interviewed almost since the beginning of the show has their their books have been touched in some way by the 2016 election or Brexit and its um, and its attendant uh, ethnic conflicts. And it's interesting that this book, which could very well have swerved way outside of that particular contemporary moment touches on it in interesting ways, as you're noting here, um, and the way in which it kind of invades the the higher order thinking of these um, of these people who are are seem to be driven more by logic, but also also end up needing to explore their emotional life and emotional connection to others. Um, when you were writing it, did it become clear at a particular moment that that would be part of this novel, or did you always want it to touch our exact contemporaneity? It it came later, partly because I worked on this novel for a number of years. Um, I had various family issues that that um, kept me from getting much done for about five years in the uh, what between. 2010 and 2015. So I had taken notes as far back as 2010 for this book, but didn't really get into serious work until around 2015. But a lot of my thinking of the book was already established at that point. So I had the things that I thought I wanted to do and I was working on them. And, uh, and while I was working on them, the 2016 election went by and, um, you know, so on, on the periphery was the usual kind of uh, uh, anxiety about what was happening or disbelief or whatever we wanted to. So that wasn't part of the original plan. But as since I was already writing, uh, I knew that Yugoslavia was going to get in there eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, just that you know, that late chapter that's set in Yugoslavia. And, um, and so I knew that I already had this this background theme of of ethnic conflict tribal tribal mm-hmm. identity tribal hostility i already had that and of course it didn't take um uh it was pretty obvious that if if i was going to be setting this i wanted to set it in 2016 because i wanted to end in 2017 with the eclipse I set it in 2016 because I wanted to end it in 2017 with the solar eclipse. And so I was already locked into that. And here I am thinking already about at least a reference to tribal conflict uh, vis-a-vis Yugoslavia. And so it just became obvious that I would have to make some reference to what was going on in the U.S. because it otherwise would make no sense that mm-hmm. the characters 
would not would not draw some of these same conclusions about what was going on in the U.S. So that's how it came in. Uh, I'm perfectly happy that it's there. I think it's appropriate that it's there. But one of the reasons it's touched on quite lightly is that you're right. My main concerns are are not are not that they're more familial. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's in and the the Yugoslavia part is very interesting to me because one it it offers a a bleak possible future picture for the way in which um you know countries unravel, but also because of your very personal experience um being a traveler through Yugoslavia in its final moments. And I wonder um clearly that still weighs on you. Do you see um do you see parallels and disturbing parallels between our moment in the US and that moment that you witnessed in in Yugoslavia? Absolutely. Um all the time. And uh when I was there in uh, back in uh 1991 you know people there were were saying well i was being fatuously optimistic when i was there in 89 and 90 thinking oh you know there's too they won't fall apart there's too much to lose people people are not that irrational Mm -hmm. and people were telling me no no you don't understand you know this this country has a history of this kind of thing so then I eventually, of course, saw that what was happening there. But there was still a part of me that just thought, oh, well, I mean, the, the, there, there had been you know, a significant economic decline in Yugoslavia. There's about a 30% contraction in the G, uh, uh, GNP. So, that, you know, you think, okay, people are feeling this, this extreme dissatisfaction uh, economically. And I just didn't – I still didn't see – I also saw the way the media operated then, and I didn't, um, I wasn't listening, say, to talk radio at all back in those days. And I had no idea what was going on in the talk radio world here in the U.S. um, with the, you know, the right wing sort of barrage. So, yeah, as 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 all of this started to happen, watching the watching the the tipping point pass where where. the, the very small number of Republicans jumped jumped ship, but then the rest decided to mm-hmm. to, to change their direction so they could stay on the ship. I, well, I think it's I, I mean it, it strikes us all dumb a little bit um, because in a way it seems impossible that given everything um, that we saw with our own eyes that people would still choose that direction and that they would be so um, ahistorical. In thinking that it that it's okay to flirt with those kinds of things so openly, clearly, um, you know the 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 kind of the shadow of fascism became much more of a um, a present rather than a shadow, and yet still the kind of tiptoeing around and and putting a dipping toes into into fascism light and then fascism scary and fas- fascism approaching um, is something that played out in the Balkans and has played out a- everywhere across the world at one point or another, just not yet in in the United States. And I think that's probably why it's so scary and renders us all rather inarticulate because it's it's hard to know exactly how to talk about it. Um and, and one thing I'll just add yeah. you know, to to make to make the 
since a lot of this book is about taking a certain framework and then backing backing away from it and looking at the larger frame and then backing away from that and looking at the larger frame. And to me, as you know, from the, toward the end of the book, ultimately, um, if we back far enough back and think of, of, you know, uh, ecological systems on the, uh, uh, on the planet and the rise of intelligence, um, and how it affects the planet, the planet and, and, and likelihood of, of a, of a environmental collapse, um, you know, tribal in-group, out-group problems uh, are are not the problem uh, when you look at it at that scale. It's mm-hmm. really mm-hmm. actually scientific ingenuity that's the problem at that scale. Um, pe- scientists, pe- people who have figured out how to do all these things um, that have kept the human population growing and growing and growing, um, you know, that that's that's what is going to bring on ultimately the environmental collapse. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it's worth to, when I sit here and I decry, you know, uh, the right wing stuff. I, I, I like to remind myself that in the larger frame, it may be instead the the, the smart people who are who are going to create the biggest long term problems because of their ability to solve the small problems mm-hmm. uh, as as population grows, as, um, you know, agriculture continues to extend as as habitat gets destroyed. Um, anyway, that I was having a conversation with a friend of mine who's um, uh, who does uh, environmental studies from a historical and humanistic perspective. And he was saying that um, something very similar to what you're saying and that and part of it is that those those very smart people, as you call them, have been committed to this idea of human progress um, it, that looks a certain way and that has certainly been responsible for the extraction of fossil fuels um, in, you know, in seeking that goal of, you know, quote unquote progress. And that, in fact, that we'll need humanists to help rewrite the story of what human progress can be um, if we're ever to stop what seems like the the impossible to stop trajectory of environmental disaster and i don't know if that's something you've thought of at all oh sure i i think when it comes to the large view of environmental problems um i tend to be and have been for most of my adult life somewhat pessimistic about human ability everything that i see from human society and the way you know the desire of the less developed countries to attain the um uh, standard of living of the developed societies the reluctance of the developed societies to countenance even small reductions in their own standard of living um i i don't think the environmental problem to me it it doesn't look ultimately solvable um i think we're going to fail this one yikes (laughs) um on that note i think i'll um think a little bit with you about the um the way in which this novel does try and think in that kind of 
deeper, longer sense of planetary time, human time. And it makes me think of the literary critic Waichi Dimock, um, who has sort of pioneered the idea of reading American literature across what she calls deep time, where American literature is answerable not to the nation state, but to the human species as a whole. And The Stone Loves the World enacts exactly this kind of deep time, um, both by tracing a family through generations of trials and experiences, and also by having those characters consider the entire history of human existence and the possibility of complex life on other planets. A human's life is in context so very brief. Did you make this an intergenerational story to try and kind of extend out and then parallel in this micro way the longer history of human existence? Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. I think that's probably true. It wasn't conscious when I was doing it, but you're right that if you do an intergenerational story, it means that you're you you will have characters that become important and then will die and yet the novel goes on um and i think that is it is interesting now that i now that you point that out that that can parallel in a way the 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 again stepping back to the larger frame uh the fact that all of us uh, even though it's it's hard to believe but all of us individually are going to die and then and stepping, stepping don't remind again. me right <laughs> <laughs> and stepping back again to you know the the regardless of what happens right now with the with the climate problem you know you step again farther back and you look at say the planet earth you know there's no way that uh the uh human species when we, when we look on the cycle on the on the frame of millions of years and there's many, many, many millions of years to go for the Earth to be getting a good amount of sunshine and having all kinds of possibilities for life diversification. Even the most optimistic people, I don't think, can imagine that humans are going to be around for those millions and millions of years. You know, I think it'll be I think we'll be lucky if you know we manage a few more thousand years. And so then the question is, OK, this this too shall pass. And what does it mean life in the universe if we don't why why should it be upsetting to us to think that yes this is the time when we humans are around but the well of time is deep as thomas mann said and uh you know the, the humans will disappear other species will arise on this planet um it's you know i'd love to be able to see that happen but of course that's not going to happen hmm. so i i find i don't expect necessarily a lot of people to find this comforting but but i genuinely find it comforting to to step far enough back to say look maybe we won't solve the environmental problem right now that'll be catastrophic the earth will recover um and and have many 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 chances to diversify again and who knows what kind of species some of them may be intelligent that 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 I find comforting. Um, I a lot of people don't find that comforting. Uh, I think I it. I think it's a it's it's a deep time comfort, and if you're willing to have that vision of a of a longer, deeper, more substantial um, 
epoch, then then that's a, a different kind of hope um, and a different kind of comfort. I've come to think of your novel as epigenetic, by which I mean that you draw a line between characteristics or even quirks of affect or intellect inherited from generations past. You also show how de detrimental epigenetics, especially the genetic traumas of intergenerational poverty, can occasionally be broken by extraordinary individuals, especially in the examples of Imogen and Vernon in the mid-20th century. Do you believe that an individual born with certain gifts can overcome their inherited circumstances? Yes, um... Partly, well, yes, I do believe that. And then, as far as Imogen and Jen, uh, Imogen and Vernon go, I'm basing them quite closely on my own parents, um, who both passed away within the last decade. And so, I was willing to write this book because um, I didn't want them to read it. But um, so, so their family backgrounds are quite close to what's here. And I think for both of them, what happened when they, when they broke away from their families or, you know, my, my father was the first member of his family to get any kind of a college degree. Um, his family had been mountaineers of North Carolina. Um, and my mother came from Alabama. Um, and her family were small, very small farmers, uh, in Alabama and in both cases, it doesn't have to be this way, but for them both, when they excelled academically and uh, they, they did feel like it was a breaking away from their family. And as a consequence, both of them had very little contact with their families. They, in a way, it felt like they both needed, felt that they needed to, to cut away what the millstone of their family. Hmm. It, um, I'm not, I'm just saying this is what their attitude was, yeah. not not what would be an ideal attitude or a justified attitude. I don't know. But so we ended up, the family that I grew up in, in, uh, in the Boston area, both of my parents had very little contact with their family. So the result was that we had almost the, um, what the, the parody of the stereotype of the sixties nuclear family, where basically nobody else, there were no cousins, there were no aunts. Uh, uh, it was just the five of us. Uh, Cause I had two siblings as opposed to the, the one sibling that's in the book. That um, kind of question about the individual versus their family circumstances makes me think of uh, what I think of as the predominant kind of sense of um, liberalism these days, which is that institutional structures are so often more powerful than than even the most gifted individual. And, you know, as you think about, you know, your own uh, generations of your own family and then the kind of circumstances of the United States. Is that something that you balance in your sort of um, both, you know, the creative life of coming up with these characters in the novel, but also in thinking about your own family's trajectory? How do those institutions, um, you know, battle with the desires and capabilities of the individual? Yeah, well, I think my my mother had to put up with uh, again Imogen, but but also then my mother, on whom she's based. My mother had to put up with a lot of limitations, being uh, a smart 
woman or academically inclined, ambitious woman um, going to college. She graduated in 1950 and then went to uh, Johns Hopkins in the physics program uh, in the early 50s um, and then met my father and then in a, in a way that was socially sanctioned back then, uh, it, she dropped out after the first year. Uh, so she never got her PhD and she married my father and then supported him while he got his PhD. And then, and then the kids came and she became a housewife. So it was it. And, and, and she was, I think, um, later in life had a lot of regret that she never processed. Hmm. about mm -hmm. this part of her life um that you know the trajectory that was handed to her as the way that she ought to go um but you know the the thing that helped uh, uh helped the family is it you know of course it helped a lot that we were all white you know my my they would do, i'm i'm a protestant i'm a um you know, I'm a white guy, Protestant background. Uh, I've, I and my family have all, you know, of course benefited from the fact that uh, we, we belong to that group. And so I really think the only, the only thing that I can point to that, that seems significant was my mother's dilemma in the fifties. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, my father, you know, he was, he was, uh, he was, he was very smart. Uh, I don't think there was really anything terribly in the way of his rise. He was very good in school mm -hmm. and, um, and he was a white man growing up in the South, uh, and, and then went to Johns Hopkins and then came up to Boston. And so he could be seen by all the people around him without any of these, you know, uh, limiting filters that people impose on any, uh, uh, you know, anyone outside that dominant group. He was just, you know, he was just Al who was good at school and good at his work. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And the, you know, one of the things about this novel is that it takes these, you know, often sort of genius level thinkers uh, and questions how much that being as you put it being good at school or being a prodigy in in capabilities especially in science and mathematics um, does that add to the quality and happiness of a life and the novel a little bit puts the lie to that um, most of the members in this family line are intellectual phenoms and yet they stumble and flail in their attempts to make happy fulfilling lives at least at major moments in their in those lives can a rich intellectual life be an impediment to a rich social one well i think i think the way it plays out in the novel anyway and I, and, and presumably in real life for a lot of people is that the intellectual engagement with things, learning a new thing, getting focused on this subject and trying to, you know, get better at it, I think is a great way in the moment to moment, day to day way to keep yourself happier uh, away from the, the thought of what's the point of it all, you know. We're all going to die anyway, so why? <laughs> da, 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 da. You know, so the, that kind of thing. I think I think genuinely getting interested in a subject is a wonderful way to stave off those moment to moment feelings of emptiness. 
However, just like just like any tool that that helps you in one way, um, it can it can hinder you in another way. And so the extent to which you allow yourself to to take that as your primary comfort um, will close you off somewhat from social interaction. Of course, there are plenty of gregarious, extroverted, you know, scientists. <laughs> my, my, I happen to come from a family of introverted scientists. And so, uh, that's why, um, introversion and is, is such a marked element in this, in this novel. And it suits my purposes better for, for the novel because I wanted this, the basic movement of this book in a very Broadway from the beginning to the end to be one from monologue to dialogue. Hmm. And mm -hmm. uh, so that we start off and the three quarters of the book are fairly extended internal monologues. And it's only it's only toward the end that we have these two extended or three dialogues that, that are the three last chapters. And and the idea behind that is to is to not show what highlight or or have the reader experience this movement out of the internal cave into something a little bit more social, a little bit more uh, lit by by daylight. And that's one of the things that I, I really love the character of Mark in particular, because you see his um, internal life developing all these empathetic traits, and he grows more and more sort of in touch with others, even though he's not expressing that in the way that perhaps he should. Um, but because we get to know him almost exclusively through his internal deliberations about the people that he loves and cares about that we we feel very strongly that he is capable of deep empathetic action as well as empathetic thought and the novel i won't spoil anything but you know bears that out um, in wonderful ways. And I think the ability of the novel to inhabit the interiority gives us a glimpse into introverts um, and how much they are thinking about those social aspects of their life and perhaps just um, needing to think longer and, and deeper in a way. Yeah. While this is certainly a standalone novel, The Stone Loves the World works as a sequel or perhaps a conclusion to your novel about the early life of the character Saskia. What was it like to return to Saskia after 24 years, uh, a character into whom you clearly invested a great deal of empathy and intellectual life? Um, and did the span of time between these two novels change how you perceived her as a character? The um, they didn't really change how I perceived her. Of course, I had to reimagine her now as a forty-four-year-old as opposed to a twelve going on thirteen. So for that, I had some concern at first that I, you know whether I would be able to create a version of her that felt like the same person but was now an adult. For me, the, the main opportunity it gave me was that in the in the original book, the Saskia, when she's only 12 going on 13, she's in the thrall of 
of her uh, father, Thomas. And the novel stays true to the to that premise, which is that there are things about Thomas that Saskia can't see. Mm-hmm. And it's all it's told entirely from her point of view. And I, you know, I, I, I wanted it to be clear to people that this was a limited point of view, that there were things that Saskia couldn't see, that we as the reader would see all kinds of things with alarm that she was unaware of. But uh, some readers were a little uncomfortable with it, and that's fine. But they were a little curious uh, what the what the real what 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 her view of Thomas should be, mm-hmm. and it gave me an opportunity in this to 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 show that you know now as an adult looking back on that, that she can see the all, some of the things or that she couldn't see back then. And in particular, I got a lot of pleasure out of the fact that Meta um, can have an interaction with Thomas um, toward the end of the novel that in a way is is sort of a redo of Saskia's interactions with her own father, but uh, yes. one from a person who has much more much less susceptibility to the kind of charm charisma that, um, that Thomas has. And I, I got a lot of pleasure out of writing that chapter. It felt in a way like a, like a, uh, what, uh, a blow struck (laughs) (laughs) Uh, after 24 years. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, the um, the ability to have a um, an adult return to those questions of the way in which we have these kind of blind attachments, or at least um, with blinders, we have these attachments, and to have that return and um, uh, in a way a kind of reawakening of the childhood mind to the context that it couldn't see is very satisfying um, in the novel. In the blurb for the book, Stuart Onan um, suggests that this is a distinctly American story. Do you agree? And if so, what makes it one? I think the thing that to me makes it feel American is the um ease with which if you're an introverted person you can choose to be isolated from the rest of your family and it can be and it can be a relatively easy process to do Hmm. i think lots of other societies you're you're um uh ensconced with a lot stronger bonds and a lot stronger expectations to a larger family that forces you, regardless of how introverted you are, to recognize, you know, these these complicated bonds of uh, what obligation uh, in the in uh, on the reverse they can feel like bonds of you know support, and so um, I think that would for me that would be the thing that would make it the most American is that these people can like float through their lives and choose to be as isolated as they want, which of course can be a problem because mm-hmm. they end up being more isolated than they want. But in a way, they've chosen it um, 
and are, and and then are at least for the moment stuck in that isolation. I hadn't thought of that, but that certainly rings true to me. I was also thinking that you know, as you say, you've got these sort of white Protestant. Um, families joining, uh, and especially with uh, Imogen and Vernon, there is a picture of something like a mid-20th century middle-class mobility, which uh, I think we can agree has has largely disappeared now, but due to kind of various government interventions and a sort of post-war economy, there did seem to be a moment, if you happen to belong to the right um, race and group, where there was that kind of propelled mobility, and they seem to be an example of that. Is that something that might as well ring American to you? Yeah, and I guess the only reason I would hesitate is is just that I don't know enough about um, other countries uh, to be able to say what's particularly unique to us. But certainly, specifically, you know, my father had the GI Bill. Mm-hmm. He bought the house that I grew up in under the GI Bill. So we had a you know four percent mortgage um, that um, you know helped pay for that house. Housing was a lot cheaper back then because you didn't have the two earner families that drove up the housing costs later on. I went to school like many. I was born in 1959. And so I went to school under the Great Society programs. Um, You know, Sputnik um, created this this uh, large amount of federal money that went into education, particularly in the sciences. And since I was good in science, you know, so I had a math club that I did. I guess math clubs still exist, but they're probably less than they used to be. Uh, There was something called the advanced program, um, which they would put kids into in my school. They'd track you because there was suddenly this desire to take what they perceived to be the gifted and talented kids and give them this greased track. Mm-hmm. Of course, the whole issue of who's perceived to be gifted and talented, um, you know, so the, the, there are great criticisms of these tracks because of course you get this group of privileged kids early on on the track and they just start to accelerate away from everybody else. Yeah. And what later on looks like pure merit, Autocracy, of course, is is not that and is based mm-hmm. on a lot of concealed assumptions and unacknowledged biases. Um, no one was even talking about that back then. I'm sure some people were noticing it, but no one was talking <laughs> about it. And uh, so I was just part of this group, you know, um, of um, almost entirely, you know, white kids um, from 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 this largely white town that I grew up in. I mean, I think you've perfectly articulated the the myth of meritocracy, and especially your the metaphor you use of greased tracks, um, and who who got the greased tracks and who didn't. And the GI Bill is was really miraculous as government intervention, but it, like everything else, um, greased certain tracks. Right. Yeah. The in the program where I grew up, we were chosen or offered the opportunity of going into the advanced program uh, at the end of second grade. So, you know, here was, and I remember it was not like, it's not like we took a test or anything, but, but several of us from our second grade classes were like, 
I don't, I can't remember whether taken aside or the parents were talked to, but basically said, you know, your child, if you're interested, can go into this program. And, you know, just imagine how many unconscious bias biases go into mm-hmm. uh, the parents deciding, oh, the, you know, that kid, that kid and that kid, you know, they're they're the really they're the really talented ones. <laughs> yeah. Well, I can remember being moved from a a, a bland classroom where I, I, I can't recall m- much of what happened there to having been plucked out for no reason that I could tell and put in this room that was called the gifted room where there were like, you know, human skeletons for us to look and name the bones and and things like that. And all of a sudden, you know, academic life for me changed forever. Um, and it it couldn't have been any test that I took. Uh, and so it, you know, what went into that choice baffles me. It certainly changed my, my life forever. Um, but I think about the kids who remained in the bland unadorned classroom. Yeah. Yep. Um, you know, speaking of math clubs and, uh, you know, the chance that I, I got in this novel to really sort of geek out about a lot of fascinating subjects, I'm thinking that given the novel's intense thinking about life on other planets, that you have an opinion on that possibility. Um, and in the in the novel, it, it it's pretty pessimistic based on you know, percentage chance and the sun's limited durability. Um, but is that something that you've given some thought to? Yeah, the, the, the way Mark looks at it is pretty much the way I look at it with without the tiniest illusion that 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 my opinion uh, has any validity. Um, I think I think the point um, as Mark as Mark thinks of it is that the problem is we really basically have no idea Mm. and and i find it interesting and completely understandable how scientists who are involved in this find it find it difficult to really just say look we have no idea uh, about the prevalence of life in the galaxy or the universe we just have no idea and at that point stop talking um because we were we, we would love to have an idea and we are scientists are are looking at some of the parameters but the but the the most important the two most important parameters i th- as far as i'm concerned w- which are what is the chance that life of any kind will develop on a habitable planet and then the second one once you have life of a simple kind what is the chance that it will become complex life and and then a smaller subset question among complex life, intelligent life. Hmm. And and the simple answer really is we have absolutely no idea what the percentages are, what the <laughs> plausibility is. And so when you have something like the Drake equation, which tries to tries to, you know, parse this out and come up and then if anyone makes the mistake, I think the mistake of plugging any kind of a number into the Drake equation when it comes to these two possibilities. The answer that you come up with is meaningless. Scientists, like anyone, we we all want life to be prevalent in the universe. And so for me, it's interesting how this perhaps perhaps more strongly than almost any other bias among scientists also is toward 
optimism just because we don't it's not fun to think of it's not interesting to think of um uh, a universe that basically has virtually no life in it mm -hmm. so so to say that i'm 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 not even i'm not even pessimistic really i uh instead it i i just try to stay especially articulate people have a hard time not just talking on and on about things i i have that problem <laughs> and and so it's very difficult to just say we don't know and then stop talking <laughs> Yes, that is very difficult. Um, but it's a fascinating subject regardless. So before I leave you today, um, I want to talk a little bit about the fact that your novel has been uh, compared to Jonathan Franzen's The Corrections. I think personally that yours is the far better and more accomplished novel. But would you be willing to recommend some like-minded books in the category of great family novels? That is novels about generations of a family and also scientifically minded novels. And any time period or tradition is welcome. Uh, I, the, the, the list for scientifically minded novels, I can, I can make uh, fairly short just because, um, as I mentioned earlier, I think a lot of uh, novels that, that touch on science do so for my taste too lightly um, and don't really bring us into the scientific mindset, which I think is the, the most what important part of, mm -hmm. of a scientist. Yeah. Um, but uh, I think Richard Powers certainly has spent his career taking certain subjects and doing deep dives into them um, and, you know, and then constructing narratives around them. Um, so if I had to think of, if I, if I had to choose the writer where I think what I do is closest to what another writer does, um, it would probably be Richard Powers. And did you have a particular uh, one of his novels that you like? Well, I recently read the overstory. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's the one, um, that is most in my mind right now. Um, and it reminded me, you know, and, and in, in that book, he is, uh, as it, as it happens, he's, he is, uh, also talking about, uh, life on planet earth, uh, the environmental, um, the coming environmental crisis. And he steps back also to contemplate things like the longer reach of life on earth. Um, he, he, he takes the frame back at, at one point to contemplate exactly the thing that I do in this book, which is, well, can we take comfort from the fact that this may all be, uh, a huge collapse we're coming at now, but what will happen later? Um, when, when the earth, uh, ecosystem starts to recover, you know, that's, that's a, that's a very, very impressive novel. And then when it comes to family novels, there's more, more that I can think of. Um, I think the novel that the first family novel, what I read relatively young and was completely taken with was uh, V.S. Naipaul's early novel, A House for Mr. Biswas. Mm, I love that um, book. 
and uh, I've read it twice when I was young, and 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 just thought that there was something about it that felt almost like a a perfect novel. I'm interested to read it again because now that we know so much about his Naipaul's own personality and the way he <laughs> seemed to get odder and odder as he got older, the kind of contempt that was such a huge part of his personality. Yeah. I'm a little curious to read Biswas again and see, of course, novels stand separate from their authors, but um, I would like to read it again and, and see how it affects me now. It's hard Plus, not to read with him kind of <laughs> whispering into your ear his various his various uh, condemnable uh, ideas about the world but it's i mean i've read the novel fairly recently and it I, I agree that there's something about its its structuring and its feeling that feels kind of perfected and i try to tell myself or i do tell myself you know that uh someone as extreme as naipaul's personality in his later years I, you know, I wonder to what extent we can start calling him mentally ill, mm, you know, mm, you know mm. and, 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 and when I do that, that allows me to withhold judgment more, um, and just say, you know, something, something's odd um, yeah. with what's going on here. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I'm going to follow you in, in that, in that trajectory. Uh, you know, so other ones that I've thought of, uh, is uh, the sound of the fury, uh, which I think I, I've read that one like four times, and I'm like a lot of people. I don't like the Quentin chapter very much, but the other three, I think, are so wonderful. Um, I love the Quentin chapter. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, it's interesting. For me, the nature of the the writing, the stream of consciousness. The particular way that Faulkner does it in the Quentin chapter it has never really appealed to me, whereas what's going on in the Benji chapter. And then Jason, I've often found the Jason chapter, and I think a really intriguing example of how reprehensible, repellent you can make a character and yet still somehow make him funny. Mm -hmm. and uh, in fact, you mentioned the corrections. I've always thought, I've always wondered if Jonathan Franzen, in the chapter, in the section in uh, the corrections, which is called, the more he thought about it, the angrier he got. <laughs> I wonder to what extent he's consciously channeling uh, the, the tone and direction of the Jason uh, section in um, Sound and the Fury. Yeah, that would be a fear. remarkable uh, subtitle to that section. <laughs> <laughs> because it's this mounting, grimly comic view of uh, both of them, the Jason and this chapter from the Corrections, of this person digging deeper and deeper into their id-like rage mm. and, and how it is... Um, not not serving them well. <laughs> so let's see. Yeah, and of course, I think of uh, beloved. You know, Toni Morrison. Of course, there's a you, you, there's a novel. I guess that a lot of people have heard of it because it won. Did it win a big award? Pachinko by Min Jin Lee. Oh yes, that's a marvelous novel. Oh, uh, the, uh, Joyce Carol Oates. Of course, she's written many many novels, and a lot of them are about families. Um, the Grave Digger's Daughter. I think is a is a wonderful book. And I just recently saw that in a way, 
it's it's somewhat analogous to my book in that she's basing that novel on her parents' lives, and she had said somewhere that she didn't want to write it or publish it until after her parents were dead. Hmm. And so that's very much, you know, my attitude toward Imogen and Vernon. Um, um, that's so interesting, and I haven't read that, but she has just a book every five seconds, it seems. Right. Yeah, and when I read... I've, most of her books I haven't read because I'm a slow reader. Uh, when I read The Gravedigger's Daughter, as a fellow writer, I wanted not to like it because you have this thing of, well, how can she how can she do good books if she produces them so fast? You know, I can't produce books that fast, therefore. And so I I really started it with a bias against it, and it just uh, it just won me over, and I finished it. It's uh, what 600 pages or so. I finished it kind of on this high, this entranced high uh, of what she what she was accomplishing as far as just psychological what verisimilitude. Mm-hmm. She's got this just this driving energy. Um, it really does feel like she gets possessed by the subject that she's writing, and 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 therefore it really starts to feel like you're not really reading her; you're reading instead this possessive force. Hmm. Uh, that's using her as an instrument. And that's that can make for a very um, rewarding reading experience. I, I love uh, that way of thinking about her drive as, as possession. Um, yeah. I think that helps me better understand her, her productivity. <laughs> There's a novel called The Last Samurai by Helen DeWitt. Um, that is a oh, fascinating yeah. That's a wonderful by. book. Oh, yeah, you know that. Yeah, exactly. And a very interesting structure, um, about mainly about a mother and her child. Um, and bears some commonality, I think, with the Saskiaad. Absolutely. Yeah, I, 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 I was, especially the second half of that book, I was uh, completely blown blown away bowled over by the way she structures it and and how beautifully it works and her other her other books which i think have gotten less maybe less attention are are pretty miraculous as well if you haven't touched on her newer stuff um, i haven't it's it's worth seeking them out i will as i mentioned i'm a slow reader so i'm always i'm always uh, groping behind what everyone else does but i'll i'll um i'll look those up Great. Well, Brian, it's been such a pleasure to talk with you today. And um, I was so excited to be introduced to your work. Uh, and I'm I'm really hopeful that people are going to run out and buy this novel because I think it's one of the, the great pleasures of this summer. So thank you so much for being on the show. You're welcome. It's It's been nice uh, talking to you about it. It's been a lot of fun. Take care. Yeah. Bye. Well, that's all for the show. My heartfelt thanks to Brian Hall for joining us. I feel lucky to have discovered his work. Please find links to The Stone Loves the World and all of Brian's recommendations at burnedbybooks.com. And if you can, leave a starred rating at iTunes or Spotify as you listen. It helps new listeners find the show.
Next week is a particularly exciting episode when I'll welcome Katie Kitamura, whose intimacies has captured the reading world this summer. Until then, this has been Burned by Books. Thank you.